installment of a franchise. This is episode 14, a bonus episode, and today's movie is Look Who's Talking Now from 1993, directed by Tom Ropluski. I'm your host, Mike. The dog? And am I really talking, or are you just hearing my thoughts? Today I'm joined by my main man and Cage Club co-founder, the podfather himself, Joey Lewandowski, who is gracious enough to come over from Cinemaker's Amy Heckerling to close out the Look Who's Talking series. You see, over on Cinemakers this season, Joey, Kara, and myself are watching and reviewing all the films of one Amy Heckerling, and she just so happened to have been the creator of the Look Who's Talking franchise. She wrote and directed the first movie, and co-wrote and directed the second Look Who's Talking film, and since I have the forum here, I was like, hey, anyone want to come by my show and take care of part three? Kara was the smart one and decided to pass on more talking things that shouldn't be able to talk type movies, but I did manage to wrangle Joey for an hour to put this franchise to bed once and for all. Now it's time for the show within a show. No part three. Episode two. Right now. No, 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 no. Part three. So another movie franchise that has no part three, but I would really love to see, is Tron. As a kid, I loved original Tron. As an adult, I loved Tron Legacy. And that movie actually set up Tron 3 pretty well. Like at the beginning, you got like the Cillian Murphy character. And at the end, you know, there's kind of like a nice cliffhanger going on. And for some reason, that project seems to have fallen into some kind of development hell over at Disney. I understand the mouse has its hands full with the Marvel and Star Wars now, but Tron is one of their original properties, and it's pretty spectacular too. Visually, those films stand alone, and thematically, I always liked the user-creator relationship and the concept of other worlds represented by the grid. I mean, it's like the Matrix before the Matrix. Plus, that Daft Punk score to Legacy is amazing. Uh, so there you have it. No Part 3, Episode 2, Tron. No, 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 no. Part 3. Hey, another segment. What's going on here? Third time's a news. So if you listened to my last episode when I debuted No Part 3, the first movie I suggested was Sister Act. And wouldn't you know it, since I last recorded, there's news that Sister Act 3 is in the works. Whoopi doesn't seem to be involved in any capacity this time, but I'm never ruling out a little cameo or something. I'm just glad someone listened to my show last week and got this idea. More on Sister Act 3 news as it develops. One last thing. No book club today. I know, right? I mean, it's season one forever after all, so from now on, not every show is going to have a book club. But in retrospect, I guess I could have read from that Dr. Spock baby book Kirstie Alley reads from in part one. But alas, on with the show. So, please put your tray tables and seats in their upright position. Make sure you walk the dog, because we're about to find out who's talking now. Joey, 
Thank you for joining me today. Third time's charm. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. I had to watch this movie last night, and it took me like two and a half hours or three hours to watch this 90-minute movie. But for the love of the game, if you will, for the love of the network. Thank you very much. Well, let's give a. I want to give a little bit of background as to what's happening today and why I'm releasing Look Who's Talking Now as the last episode of the year. Basically, what's going on is is over on Cinemakers, Amy Heckerling, Joey, Cara, Gail O'Regan, and myself are reviewing all of Amy Heckerling's films, and she wrote and directed the first two Look Who's Talking movies. So I have the forum here for Third Times a Charm, where we look at the third movie in a franchise. So being the completest. That I am, and basically due to a formality, I asked Joey if he'd want to come over onto this program so we could discuss the third and final installment of the Look Who's Talking franchise, Look Who's Talking Now, from 1993. And to be fair, we asked Kara too, and she smartly said, I think I'm good. So <laughs> we're not excluding Kara. No, no, we no. wanted her to be here if she wanted to be a part of it. And then we're like, after we saw the second one, which is, I don't want to jump ahead. I don't know which is worse, the second or the third one. I think they're in the same-ish ballpark, maybe. I think this one's probably worse. We'll get to that, I'm sure. But after the second one, she was like, I think I'm good. And I was like, I get it. And I'm, I'm glad for her that she did not watch this movie. Well, you know, you weren't even obligated to be here today. I feel like it's more of a courteous thing. But I know that you want to do all of the part threes in history at some point, you know, hashtag season one forever. And what better timing, at least for you, I mean, you're not going to want to watch the second one again, I don't think. So like, what better timing for you to do it than right now, which also I think that episode comes out today, right? Like we figured out that both of these episodes, two and three, both come out today on the network. So yeah, yeah, that was very fortunate. It, It felt like we had to do it. Yeah, that's true. It did feel like the planets were aligned for this. (laughs) Some dark magic at work. No, it's interesting how that just happened to line up because I had planned on doing Christmas Vacation for my December episode. And then when we were doing the Amy Heckerling stuff, she did European Vacation. And those episodes are going to come out on the same day. And now I believe this is coming out the same day as Look Who's Talking 2. So it's destiny, I guess. (laughs) And we're here now reviewing this movie. Yeah. Amy Heckerling just fitting in right with your plans for your podcast. Unknowingly, decades ago, the stars aligning. This movie came out 25 years ago, and it's a Christmas movie. It's, it's perfectly seasonally appropriate. So this was a surprise Christmas movie for me. It was like a secret Xmas film. I, I had no idea. I'd only seen the first half of this movie. We're, we're sort of going to forego the history of the franchise, because you could just go listen to Joey and I talk about that over on Cinemaker. And my history with the franchise is, as you know, I watched both of the first movies for the first time this month. So that's that's my history here. Actually, one of the things I want to say, like you know, in terms of surprise Christmas movies... As we're recording this, Kyle's episode of Diner just came out on Foodie Films, and that's another Christmas, surprise Christmas movie. So, like, I watched two movies yesterday that were surprise Christmas movies. Yeah, and I'm really getting into the spirit early. I went and saw The Grinch with my niece and nephew yesterday as of this recording, and that movie definitely gets you into the Christmas mood. So, it's happening, and it snowed a little in the afternoon, so we're getting there early this year. A little bit up here. Yeah. When I went out to get lunch, I was like, wait a minute. But yeah, here we are with Look Who's Talking Now. You know, they divert a little bit from the first two movies. That's a little bit of the reasoning is why I think this is worse than the last one, is that we are no longer following talking babies. We are now following talking animals, but not just like any animals, just dogs. 
And we're not just not following talking babies. Like, Bruce Willis and Roseanne Barr are just not in this movie. Like, in the opening scene when there's, like, the getting ready for bed montage and, like, the kids are both talking, I was like, are we not going to have inner monologue? And they looked at the cast list and I was like, oh, no, they're just not in this movie, which feels like a mistake. I feel like you could still have a talking kid and have inner monologue that is, you know, beyond his years. But at the same time, what annoyed me the most about this movie is how inconsequential the talking animals, the talking dogs had to the plot at all. Like, this movie is another plot, just like the second movie, about, like, a relationship on the rocks, right? And then the talking dogs only factor into the plot in the last, like, 25 minutes. Like, they're they're talking throughout, but it doesn't matter. Like, it's not like the conceit of the first movie was, like, we're watching this relationship through the eyes of a wisecracking baby, right? Like, that is the thrust of it. I think that's why people responded to it. And then the second one sort of felt, like, gimmicky a little bit. And this one feels incredibly gimmicky. Like, it's just like, oh, you know those things that you loved so much in the first two? We're going to do it again, but it's a little bit different, and it's going to mean a little bit less. Well, I think you nailed it. Like, it's a full-on gimmick at this point. Like, that's a great point with the first movie was like, yeah, we're seeing this adult relationship through the eyes of a baby, of an infant. And then the second one is, you know, mostly a retread for the most part. But this is just, this feels like two different scripts jammed together. Like, there was just a comedic drama and then a talking dog movie. And the writer got about halfway through both of them and decided, you know what? Like, maybe I could make something out of this. If Why I not both? Yeah, had jammed these two things together and that's how it feels like there's a way to do this they could have done this successfully i don't think you do it as a part three for look who's talking though i think you're right a smart thing to do would have been to have sort of toddler mikey who could talk and speak and then also have his inner monologue almost like a novel or something like that would be very interesting i'm i'm actually quite surprised that part three isn't adult mikey with his babies but the idea that they went to the talking dogs kind of felt like they were reaching outside their universe to me. The other problem that I have with the talking dogs is another problem that I had sort of with the, the second movie, and maybe a little bit with the first, is that I have no sense of time in the universe of these movies. Like, I don't know how long these stories take place on. We follow the dog, the Danny DeVito dog, rocks from a puppy to, like, basically a full-grown dog, but, like, in the span of what feels like two years for the dog, like, two months pass for the people? Like, I don't understand, like, how that dog grew so much from, like, September-ish to Christmas. I feel like when they're like, oh, we're in a universe with talking dogs, maybe I missed something, but like when we're in a universe with talking dogs, consistency and timelines don't need to matter because there's already magic. But it feels like from the time that the puppy was a puppy getting adopted by the bikers and then jumping out the back of that, going to the homeless guy, and then like basically in a cool transition comes back as like a full grown dog, it feels like no time has passed, but that dog grew a ton. Not just from puppy to like toddler puppy, but like from puppy to full grown dog. And I was just like, I don't know, like, how, do you have the idea how long that took place over? So the entire movie takes place over four and a half months. Which is crazy. It's insane. Absolutely. There's really no logic, because I don't even know how old the kids are in this movie, and how long it's been really since the last movie, and what the timeline is. It's very sketchy in this, but yeah. You know kids better than I do, because you have your niece and nephew, and you know you saw your other niece and nephew grow up, but like, it feels like they're like four and six. Does that feel about right? So I'm not sure what grade Mikey's supposed to be in. If I could just tell if he's in first grade or second grade, I'd be able to pinpoint it, but I, I mean, some. To my understanding, they're only supposed to be about a year apart or, or maybe a year and a half apart. Okay, yeah. But they seem like two years apart. Like, Julie seems way younger than Mikey to me in this. She seems more around, like, maybe five, where he's coming across more like eight or nine to me. So it's weird. Did you recognize him, the kid actor? 
I did. Yeah, Seventh Heaven. Yeah, I was like, because I was like, why does this kid look so familiar? And I looked him up, I'm like, holy shit, it's Simon. You know, that show that I watched so much growing up, coming from, you know, a semi-religious household, and that was like family drama hour, and to the point where like, when I finally was like, oh no, I don't need to watch this anymore, I was, you know, freed of that burden, but I was like, oh my god, and then she's still acting too, Julie, but she's not as, nearly as, I, I don't know if he's successful, he was successful at least, you know, he was, I'm sure he's still very well off from that one show. But, you know, they're still both around. I always sort of, not worry, but wonder when, when child actors, if they're sticking around or not, and they both made it to a certain extent, which is cool. So here's some pretty cool trivia about these two kid actors is that, so David Gallagher is the boy, and he and Travolta work together again in Phenomenon, and Travolta played his dad. Yeah. And then the, the actress Julie, Tabitha Lupian, she appeared with Travolta in Hairspray in 2007. So Shout out Zack Attack. Yeah, there you go. But there's like a nice little reunion that he had along the way with those two actors. One thing that blows my mind about Travolta here is he's a year away from playing Vincent in Pulp Fiction. Yes. And he mm-hmm. looks like Vincent in Pulp Fiction in this. He he looks drastically different than the last episode. Yeah, I feel like when we first saw him, I was like, oh, he doesn't look as good in this movie. But then I was like, he just kind of looks different. Like, his hair looks worse. Because we, we noticed from the first one, the second one, like, he lost weight. He got in, like, a much better shape. Because, like, the first movie was in that little stretch of a few that he was doing in, like, 89, where he was, like, coming back, right? And so the year after, when they did Look Who's Talking too, it seemed like he had recommitted to being a public figure and actor and got in better shape. And he looked great in the second one. And he doesn't look bad in this one, but I was just like, oh, he doesn't look as good as he did in the second one. Kirstie Alley, I think, looks about the same. I think she always looks good in all three of these movies. But, you know, I definitely noticed Travolta, like, the hair a little a little askew in ways, but I still liked him. I liked both of them in this movie. I, I was just kind of bummed in terms of the returning people that, like, we didn't get Bruce Willis back, because I think he is one of the best, if not the best, part of the, the first two movies. To me, it's like Travolta, him, and Kirstie Alley, right? Like, you need the, those are the essential sort of yeah. ingredients yep. that you need yep. and one's missing here. Yeah, no, I really like Kirstie Alley in this. Like, she's she's just got natural time. I think, like, her comic timing is great and it's just, like, not obvious all the time either. She just comes across as, like, really natural. And, like, it's not that I didn't think Travolta was good or anything. It just he seemed heavy to me and I was a little worried. It, I, I wonder if, the, if there was some kind of contractual obligation to be here or something and maybe, you know, he was not happy with the lack of success from the last movie. I'm not sure, but like, yeah, just a year away from now and he's going to be on top of the world again, basically like forever. This just was like hard to get into for me this time, you know, because like you were saying earlier, how separate the dog stuff is from the human stuff. Like, it's just really tough the way they're setting this whole movie up. We get all these other problems with the children. One thing that was like really strange to me is how they set up Julie as loving Charles Barkley. Oh, that is, it's either my favorite or my least favorite part of this movie, that she loves Charles, like, they live in New York, right? But mm-hmm. she loves the Phoenix Suns, and she loves Charles Barkley, to the point where they even do, like, a a dream sequence where she schools Charles Barkley, that she, like, dribbles, yes. like, he dribbles, and then dunks on him. And I was like, what is, like, what, like, was that, like, did Charles Barkley write to them and be like, I love these movies, let me be in the third one, if there's a third one? They're like, all right, like, I, like, I can't imagine how else that would have come about other than him reaching, because it feels like such 
such a weirdly specific... I mean, he was a huge star at the time, but, like, it's such a specific celebrity to have in here. Like, why did that happen? So, I remember he was fighting Godzilla in shoe commercials around this time, and he was great. He was huge. Oh, okay. Was he trying to become, like, a crossover star? Like, was he trying to become an actor? I don't think so. I mean, he was in Space Jam, I guess, because a bunch of NBA stars were. Yes. Mm-hmm. My thinking was he tried out or auditioned. Maybe they wanted him to be a voice in this movie as, like, one of the dogs or maybe a secondary dog or something maybe one of the wolves at the end. And I I mean, you know, this series is known for dream sequences and we get one or two in it. So maybe they're just like, we got a wedge in a dream sequence here. I kind of like it. I think it's pretty funny. And up until a point, I thought it was, you know, it was kind of um, like interesting to say like, here's a young girl and she's interested in what's mostly a male dominated sport. I don't think that WNBA was really around in full force in 1993. And no, I don't think it existed yet. That's something you just don't see every day in movies is like the girl jock growing up and stuff. So I thought that was kind of cool until the point where she thinks that, you know, it turns out she thinks that they're actually flying for real. And at one point in the movie, baby Julie climbs a bookshelf and tries to jump off it like Peter Pan and go flying. Yeah. And I was like, well, that just ruins everything. Like the whole setup about the basketball and Julie was just for that joke. It wasn't like, oh, she wants to grow up and be a basketball player. or She's into sports or anything. So they had me and then they lost me with that. And I feel like the part where she climbs the bookshelf and then like pretends to fly off, that just paints Kirstie Alley as like a bad, inattentive mom. And I was like, that just seems kind of like mean and like underhanded. You know what I mean? Like this whole movie seems like, you know, Kirstie Alley gets laid off at work because she's too good at her job. She's too expensive. They have to like, you know, basically let the expensive people go as they're doing budget cutbacks or whatever. So she's like a stay-at-home mom, kind of looking for work. And then when Travolta gets his really high-paying gig, being like a personal pilot for this woman, Samantha, she's able to, I think, kind of relax a bit and just be a stay-at-home mom. But, like, she's not a bad mom in the first two movies. Like, she's, you know, a new mom in the first one, but she's always been a good mom. And here, it's just like, let's ramp up the comedy and have her make sure that she has no idea what's going on or what she's doing. It just feels out of character, the character that Amy Heckerling built in the first two movies. Yeah, agreed. It feels a little desperate and stale. Like, I know they want to sort of dig in more. Like, all these movies have sort of been, like, trying to portray lessons of... You know, raising a kid. Like in the last one, we had the potty monster. And in this one, Mikey is going to learn that there's no Santa Claus. Like, but that just feels too far for a family-friendly kids movie. Like, who's going to take their kid to this movie and then find that's when the kid finds out there's no Santa Claus? Like, it just doesn't seem like something you'd discuss in a Look Who's Talking movie. I feel like they're, in trying to talk more about, like, the issues, I feel like they're maybe crossing a line from time to time. I think by the end, though, like, I feel like, and I can't I can't pull them because I haven't watched these in, like, 25 years, but I feel like there's kids' movies where kids discover there's no Santa Claus, and then, like this one, by the end of the movie, sort of have that faith restored. So the parents can point to the kid and be like, no, look, they heard him on the radio. Like, he's real. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that happens from time to time in movies. I do agree that it's a little weird to put in this. Also weird to put in this movie is that Danny DeVito calls a cat a pussy, and I was just like, is that just, like, a way to, like, make adults laugh? Did you hear that? Did you catch that or no? I caught that, and there's also a very... They make one of the kids tell the start of a very offensive knock-knock joke, which is just... Oh, transsexual, yes. Knock-knock, who's there, transsexual... Julie, don't tell. And I was like, oh no, minus several points for that. And then there's actually another knock knock joke where she goes, knock knock, who's there, Buck? And I just said, and I like to fuck. <laughs> <laughs> because 
Kill Bill. I know. I mean, that girl just loves Knock Knock Joke. She has like the the Merry Merry Christmas, and like that feels more in line with what they should be doing. But yeah, like Buck or Transsexual, just like I don't like why. I guess that's part of the thing. Like, oh, kids say the darndest things, but also I feel like kids say the darndest things is targeted toward a specifically adult or older audience. And this, like, you want to bring your kids to it, and I don't think you, I mean I, I'm sure as as Uncle Michael uh, that when you bring your kids to things, like you'd rather not have to explain like why certain things are like are jokes in movies, right? Like you just want to have like a fun family friendly time that everybody can enjoy that you don't have to be like, well, you know, they did this because or or that was just a joke, don't worry about it. Like don't complicate things. Just make like the first movie was so fun and so good for I think for all ages, maybe more for adults, I don't know. But it just feels like this like to use a fight club term, a, a copy of a copy of a copy. It feels like these literally are, right? Like it's just you're taking the DNA from the first one and then sort of like using most of it for the second one and using most of that for the third one. It just it feels very iterative in a bad way. Yeah, and you know, that's something with especially part threes that I know I'm going to encounter like more and more along the way. And I've been pretty lucky up until this point that I haven't gotten there a lot yet. Like I think maybe one or two times with something like, even though with something like Jaws or Resident Evil, you get to the third and it just kind of feels like, uh, here we go again. But at least like with Jaws, like they tried to pump it up with 3D and there's actually some kind of interesting commentary going on there with like amusement parks and stuff. But here it just does feel derivative and stale and like, they're like, hey, like we're really trying to inject some new life in this with the talking dogs instead of the talking babies. But it just feels like a different series at that point. Like when we get into the talking dog stuff, it is just so forced to me. It just feels like desperate a lot of it like Danny DeVito's lines and his readings and we didn't even mention that Diane Keaton is the fancy dog. Daphne. Like all of their jokes quote unquote are just like super flat and feel really rushed and I just really wish that they had tried to lean more into like the lady in the tramp thing which they were obviously going for but you know missed the mark by like a mile and a half if you ask me. Well, I think that problem there is that dogs just aren't important enough to the main story. Like, they needed, like, they wanted to tell the story, like you were saying before, and smash a, do- a talking dog movie into it, but, like, can't really focus on the Lady and the Tramp stuff because the movie's not about them. At least the way the movie's set up. The movie is about Kirstie Alley worried, again, for the second movie in a row, that John Travolta's cheating on her, right? Again, that sort of paints her as this, like, worrisome, you know, nagging wife. Right, exactly. And I don't know that there is a better way to blend the two stories. I think the better way to blend them is just to not mash them together at all. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you can take a talking dog movie and then have it be in this, like, threat of divorce movie. Like, I don't know that there is a good way to do it, which maybe is why, hey, don't do it. Yeah, you know, something that came to mind is a movie I saw a couple years back. I took my niece and nephew to, which is A Dog's Purpose, which it's not a talking dog, but you follow the inner monologue of a single dog throughout several reincarnations of his life and it's really well done and by the end by his last life by the end of the movie he ends up with his original owner again and it was really interesting but that movie is a hundred percent from a dog's point of view it's not trying to tell you any kind of human story it's trying to tell you the story from the dog's point of view and this doesn't the dog stuff just feels sort of like crammed in there they tried to they did a pretty interesting job of of like getting the dogs into the house, I felt. But once that happened, they completely dropped the premise. Like the idea that Mikey wants a dog for Christmas and Travolta takes him out to get one to make up 
for like not being around and telling him about no Santa and everything. Wait, Mike, you th- you mean the D word? And they saved the dog from being euthanized as well. I'm like, wait, we're talking about killing dogs in this movie on top of no Santa and well, no. They, they, but here's here's the worst thing I think about that. They're not just saying you know when when Travolta and Mikey rescued the dog, the guy at the pound it does not say he was about to be put down. He's like he was about to be destroyed or something. I was like, how is that a verb you use for an animal? It's dark. And then Travolta's boss, who is in love with him and is sort of trying to have an affair, gives the family, like, the real fancy dog, the poodle, that played played by Diane Keaton. Yeah, her dog, right? Because like, it's he, she's not home enough and she wants the dog to have a good home and also win over John Travolta with some brownie points. And I thought that was – that's interesting. That's an interesting conceit. Okay, we've got two dogs where we only wanted one dog. All right. But they really don't do much else with it from there. They have sort of like this dog tryout period. But I I was just like racking my brain. How could these two storylines interweave eventually and become one? I mean, Kirstie Alley's character is out of a job. She's she's learning how to take care of two dogs. What if what if she like learns how to take care of three, four, five more dogs? And by the end of it, they have like a family dog walking business or some kind of puppy daycare thing going on. Maybe nowadays that would fly. Maybe back then that's going a little too far. But yeah, man, like you really got to rack your brain to figure out like why these two plots are, are trying to join up and, and be together here. I think there's an interesting movie, and this is not what this movie really goes for at all, but if you had a movie where, you know, Rox and Daphne, the dogs, were competing against each other, like, you sort of have, like, this, their own, like, kind of Olympic games, right? Where they're like, you know, whoever does all these things best is going to, you know, win the affection, get to stay in the house. And they obviously have, you know, like, a, a haves and a have-nots, and there's certain things that Rox is much better at, and there's certain things that Daphne's much better at, and then together in the end, you can have the same end of the movie where they need to work together to, like, bring the family back together. Like, I think that could work. But in that way, I don't know how you weave in a story about Travolta off possibly having an affair with his boss. Like, I don't know how those intersect, which is why I don't think that they do. But I think there is, like, the thread here in terms of what they've set up if they want to do really either movie. But the fact that they're trying to do both, we're just like, this isn't working, guys. I actually quite like some of the stuff with Travolta. Again, you see this in movies all the time, the idea that like this husband or one member of the family, I think this is even part of Mr. Mom, going back to like Michael Keaton days. The other Keaton. The breadwinner is out getting a new job and has to work a lot, and then it turns out that like the boss is trying to seduce that person, and they're completely like unaware about it, and it's putting a strain on the marriage. Like There's nothing new per se about it, but I liked it as a setup. They just don't get a chance to go anywhere with it or do anything. It's like every scene they're together, it's it's like the same scene over and over again. Nothing really feels like it's advancing. It just feels like it's reminding you every scene, like, oh yeah, Travolta's boss likes him and he's unaware about it and he's kind of stuck in this predicament. And then the next time they're together is just to remind you, oh yeah, like he just, he's stuck in this predicament. He wants to get home. But like, it's very frustrating how, how I feel like this movie just walks into walls like all the time <laughs> as far as its plots are concerned. It just doesn't feel like it's developing along the way too I mean, because I think it's the same thing that happened in the second one, right? I mean, like, Travolta leaves and that, you know, we don't really know where he's going. We only see these, like, imagined realities from Kirstie Alley's dreams, but it's the same story. Like, it's it's not like they're treading new ground here. I think that's why it's frustrating, too. Like, aside from the fact that they're having the same scene, the same type of scene over and over and over again, it's just, like, the same story. Like, it's not new in any regard, either within the movie or within the series. It's just the same thing. Well, I want to talk about something I actually quite like for a minute here, and real quick, is... The dream sequence? 
the dream sequence, the, the dream sequence that Travolta and Kirstie Alley have simultaneously and then sort of like sync up their dream sequences and start experiencing each other's dream and they're dancing and it's like first it starts off as split screen and then they go into each other's heads like that belonged in a different movie like I could have seen that in the last movie or even the first movie like I thought that was really creative and we get the return of Albert as well which I couldn't believe he showed up for like one shot did he? I must have missed that yeah so when Kirstie Alley's dancing in her dream sequence the guy spins around and it's Mikey's dad it's like what? Oh, if they got him for one day, like that would have been really interesting. What if he got joint custody of Mikey and that's what the movie's about and no one has any talking anything or anything. It's just like, you know, we've abandoned the inner monologue stuff and it's just like this straight up family crisis film now where we're battling for custody. I like that the, the dream was meta in the way that she realized that she was dreaming and made Samantha disappear. And like apparently all of Samantha disappeared except for her, what we learned from Dan Clone, they're called Chicken Cut. The, the way that she stuffs her bra to make herself look more well-endowed, that she's like, ha, I knew it. But, like, it's in your dream. Like, you don't know it. And also, how did you make her dress disappear, but not, like, the, the... I just... It was all weird. Like, I liked that they went this weird route, like, in this magical realism sort of universe, that they're able to go deep and weird and meta with the dream sequence. But even within that dream sequence, the, the, the logic wasn't always consistent, which doesn't need to be, but I was also like, eh, I guess it's a joke. Okay. I like that a lot. I don't know. That really sort of perked me up. That and the Charles Barkley dream sequence, I guess because they're just so irreverent. Like like you said, they're very meta, especially the, the last one, the dancing one. The Charles Barkley one, I think more if, you know, at the time, like you were saying, or, you know, maybe he was just he was in the public eye more and was like doing commercials and, you know, he was a really good basketball player then. And maybe someone watching him would be like, oh, oh I didn't expect Charles Barkley to show up. Like, that's just so bizarre. I really like that idea, that concept of a dream sequence. I just felt like too little, too late with it. Then we get like the dog date, which is like, oh man, like they're really just trying to do like Lady and the Tramp here. Yeah. It's coming way too late and it's just not landing. I can't exactly explain. There's just like a cheap, quick feel to it that doesn't entertain me. The movie did not make a lot of money. Like, I think that, you you know, we're not alone in being frustrated or disappointed in this movie. This movie, you know, the first movie in the series made $300 million. The second one made $45 million in the U.S. I don't know what it did internationally. This one only made $10 million in the U.S. So, huge, huge drop-offs. I can't imagine, you know, the first movie cost $7 million. We don't know the budget of the second. I couldn't find the budget for the third one. Oh, it's 22 The third one oh. was 22 Yeah, so it didn't even make its money back. Wow. So, like, they probably lost money. Yeah. I'm glad, even back in 1993 that like America was like no we're just not gonna like just be spoon fed this bullshit give us something you know original or unique like that's what we're looking for and I think that original and unique thing that was coming out around this time I think Nightmare Before Christmas came out this same weekend so oh okay there was stuff out there to see that hadn't really been seen I I know I saw that in theaters instead of this so (laughs) can we talk about the dog point of view and like I like that they do a different camera thing so that you know that you're looking from a dog but like, why is it squished? Like, why does the aspect ratio seem weird? Like, why why is that the choice they make as opposed to like black and white or something that I think dogs see in black and white? Like, there, there's so many things you could have done and they, they went with this weird, like jarring, squished perspective. I really wonder about that because to me what it looks like, it looks like they shot it in anamorphic widescreen and then they didn't 
play it through the proper lens to unsquish it because like when you shoot an anamorphic it, it kind of crunches the image in the in the camera on the frame and then you have to project it through a certain lens to make it the right size right okay that's what it looked like to me. It looked as if they were like, hey, let's shoot it in anamorphic, but let's not convert it. And it'll be sort of like a crushed frame and a weird perspective. It'll just give us a different look. Like personally, I did not like it. Like you said, I think black and white would have been perfectly fine. Or maybe even, I don't know, some kind of like super saturated colorized thing where he could see a few different colors. Or, or even if they did something cool where he could like see the smells emanating off of certain objects and stuff. Because he talks about the smells a lot, right? He's like, I'm picking up up on the smell here or whatever, so that's established. I also think it would be really cool whether they go with black and white or not, like if each dog sees the world like a different kind of movie, like Daphne sees it like a French film, and like everything's black and white and people are smoking cigarettes or something, just like have a different visual style. So do you think in theaters it could have been like it just was projected correctly and like there were just, it would have been more widescreen, like there would have been more black bars? Like is that is that what it should have looked like? I, I don't know. It doesn't make it have the black bars, it just makes it feel the screen properly so oh okay so it would have been visually different I know like Guillermo del Toro shoots like that a lot like his movies don't have black bars on the top and bottom so like if they don't then I'm pretty sure it was shot anamorphic gotcha okay 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 yeah, but that was just a miss. Like, I really liked your idea there where, like, the, the dog actually sees the entire world through a sort of a different type of lens. And, like, you know, if, if Rox was seeing the world as, like, an action movie and Travolta walked in, like, you know, as Rambo and Kirstie Alley came in, like, one scene, you know, dressed halfway like Wonder Woman or something. And, you know, they were really elaborating whatever mundane activity that they were doing, like, in the kitchen. Like, they're just having cereal, but the way Rox sees it, it's just, like, out of control and explosive or something. That's a whole other budget going on there, too. I think you need a couple more million to portray all that. Although the dream sequence element of it would be in style of the previous film, so that could have been a a direction to go. Are they in the same apartment or are they in a different apartment? Because it feels at times like the same apartment, but it also feels like we're seeing wildly different camera angles. And I, I couldn't follow because I feel in a way like the apartment is like this like important kind of character to the family and to the movies in the first two. And then here, it either feels like we're in a new place or maybe it's trying to be like the same place, but it's a different set. But did you get a sense, are we in the same apartment or a different apartment? So it feels like a different apartment that's supposed to be the same apartment. Okay, okay. That's why I'm not crazy. Okay. I don't think we're supposed to question it, but I don't see how we can't because like you said, like they live, this apartment is sort of like a integral part of the thing. Like there's not enough space. We don't live in a house. There's no yard. You know, we can't have a dog because we live in an apartment and the last movie is going to be like, okay, like the family's getting bigger, but we don't have enough room because we live in an apartment. So it does seem like it's a plot point throughout, but that it's not Pay, they don't pay much attention to it in this one at all. No, there's no baskets on any doors. <laughs> <laughs> Which is disappointing because, you know, I, I don't live in a city. I don't have a dog, but I know how difficult it is to have a big dog, especially in a city where you don't have a yard. You have to like bring him out a bunch to like let him run around and do his bathroom business and stuff like that, unless you're rocks and just pees all over the apartment. But that would have been a fun added angle if they had the same apartment be like, we already didn't have enough space for 
Because it feels like from the beginning, right, that Kirstie Alley is like living alone, right? Because she's not with her boss, who is Mikey's father. And then Travolta moves in and is like, oh, well, now there's another person, like another adult living here. And that's a lot to handle. And then there's a second baby. It's like, oh, that's a lot to handle. And you add two dogs. It could be this, like, you know, like you were saying, added complication, added, you know, humor, whatever. And they don't care at all. Like, I, I feel like, you know, what you said, what I sort of thought was they want you to believe it's the same, but they don't address it at all. It's almost, and again, this is coming from two people who just watched the first two movies in the last two weeks, which I know is probably not true. If you were seeing this in theaters in 1993, you might not even remember this, but it feels like they go out of their way to not address the apartment. Yes, that sounds about right, because even in the last one, like, they totally changed the color style of everything. Yeah. But it still felt like the same place to me. Like, this just feels less cluttered. And yeah, I agree, though. It just doesn't, it doesn't reflect the characters in the same way that it did in the previous two movies. It feels more artificial than it did to me in the, in the other one. And maybe the, maybe the only reason for that is that there were three years in between movies and maybe they tore down the set. Like, it could be as simple as that, which in that case, just like say like, oh, like, you know, have the first scene be them moving into a new apartment or something. You know what I mean? Like, just moving on up, like we're a little bit better off now. And then Kirstie Alley gets fired. And you're like, oh no, like how are they going to afford this apartment? Like, I don't, like there's things you could do to address the change in things, the evolving nature of a film franchise, right? Like to sort of say, oh, like by this point, in theory, if you're now on dual incomes, you can afford a better apartment. Why don't you get a nicer apartment? You know what I mean? One direction I thought this could have taken, which would have been interesting that sort of piggyback off of what you were saying is like, okay, now we're two people with the steady income. Let's move to the suburbs. Ooh, like the beginning of this movie, they're unpacking the truck in the suburbs and then we can get a dog. That way, that setup just feels a little more natural and a little more inviting to sort of family-friendly comedy and stuff. And you have all the neighborhood dogs and the new neighbors. And on one side, it could be like the mean kid or something. The other side could be the person that Mikey starts to like. I mean, you just have so many more options and you're not locked into this formula because it really just feels like they're trying to say, how can can we make this like the previous two movies instead of how can we try and spin some new stuff off into here? I like that idea a lot, you know, because the jobs they have, like she could be an accountant from anywhere. You know, now that he is a pilot, it feels like they might not be taking off from like Manhattan. Like they probably are taking off from like Long Island or maybe Northern New Jersey or maybe somewhere else in New York. And I feel like those kind of jobs, like you could afford to live outside the city. Like you're not a taxi cab driver. You don't need to be in the city. It, It would make absolute sense and also be able to open up new comedic elements like you were saying like i wonder if you held a gun to amy heckerling's head and forced her to make a third movie what she would have done with this because this is a new writer new director new creative team you know i'm I'm impressed that they got the actors back but it feels like the people making these are familiar with the world but don't love it the way that she loved the first one and i wonder what she would have done with this movie had she been forced to do something on her own. Yeah, it's interesting. The guy who directed this, Tom Ropluski, he wrote and directed this. He he wrote and directed a couple comedies in the 80s and some with Kirstie Alley. This movie Loverboy huh. starring Patrick Dempsey okay. with Kirstie Alley. A movie Madhouse with John Larroquette starring Kirstie Alley. So I wonder if she was like, I got a guy, like, let's call in. Maybe he can salvage this and maybe we could just like sort of end this trilogy, you know, somehow. And, and he's also married to a screen screenwriter Leslie Dixon. Like she wrote a lot of stuff like Outrageous Fortune and Overboard, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Thomas Crown Affair, like Pay It Forward, The New Hairspray. So, I mean, this guy isn't... He's not a slouch, yeah. 
Yeah, he's not a slouch. He's kind of in the comedy world. He's done some work before with, with Kirstie Alley, so you'd think he would be able to write to her strengths. And I don't necessarily feel like she's bad in this or anything, but I feel like he's not writing to any other strengths that are, or any other strong opportunities in this screenplay that are presented. It's just, everything else is just, it feels like, let's just kind of get this over with. No, I agree. If, I, it feels like they're doing this like perfunctorily, like they're doing this because they feel like they have to, or they feel like they want to make more money. Like they're trying to like wring the last, you know, money out of the, the cash cow or whatever, but it didn't work. You know, I think that there are more stories to tell in this world with this family, with this kind of gimmick. It's just what they chose to do here didn't work. It's not unheard of for a third in a franchise to be better than the second in a franchise. So I could understand them going like, let's at least give it a try. Like, There's a precedent. Why stop it too? Especially when the second one made money, probably, right? Like, you know, there's still, there's still an appetite out there for this franchise. And while it didn't work for us, maybe their big idea, the big gimmick of let's switch who's talking, let's turn it into pets now instead of humans, uh, maybe that was like a big idea for maybe they're like yeah like we're really behind that you know like in their eyes maybe that was the linchpin idea that was going to set this apart and maybe launch it off maybe next time the puppies of the dogs they don't have puppies in this movie which i think was a mistake not to end it with one with daphne being pregnant but you know i could see lucas talking for being the puppies talking and then you got like eight of them running around the house or something i'm not saying go there, but I'm saying it seems like a possible line of thinking when it comes to sort of executives running the show. Like, how can we just keep ringing this towel? You know, one thing I would have liked to see more of in this movie is more of Kirstie Alley's parents, because Olympia Dukakis and Amy Heckerling's dad are so good, and I think they're only in like one or two scenes, but Olympia Dukakis does have a great line when I think it's when they're out to dinner with John Travolta, and he's in that like really gaudy blue jacket, and then Samantha shows up, and he's like, oh, she bought this for me, we were out in dinner in Paris, she didn't want me to be, like, look like a schlub, whatever, and he goes away to talk to her, and Olympia Dukakis says, I know people, we could have her audited, which is, like, the ultimate, like, badass accountant line, I guess, like, you know, we, we could make her life a living hell, like, let's audit her. I love those characters. She is being audited later in the movie. That was hilarious. Is that Amy Heckling's dad that's back as the dad? He looked a little different. I don't I wasn't know. Sure I just, because she wasn't back if he came back. But. I just assumed. I don't know. Because he's only in like one scene. Like, he could have done it as a favor to maybe Olympia Dukakis or to Travolta and Kirstie Alley or whatever to be on set for a day reading his journal. Or maybe it was like footage from a previous movie. I don't know. But I, I didn't do the, the due diligence to see if it was the same dad. But the same character. You know what I mean? Like those characters are so, like the parents are so good and so unique and they have such a specific voice that Amy Heckerling created because they are probably based on her parents, right? Because it is her dad. And just to like completely shove them aside, it just, it's disappointing because they're so full of life in the first two movies, especially the first one. Also missing is Kirstie Alley's brother and her best friend who got together in the last movie. The actors declined to return. Oh, okay. However, that would have been a great way to get the dog, too, is to get it from them. Like, because of how irresponsible the brother seems, it's like, what? I gave Mikey a dog. What's the big deal? And then, like, Travolta, maybe Travolta flips out at first, but... Or, here's an idea. So Travolta has, like, a steady job, but he's not having an affair with Samantha because we've already seen that. But it's sort of pull, like, a, a Lois Lane from Superman 3, where she's in the first scene. She's like, I'm going on vacation. I'll see you at the end of the movie. <laughs> and they could be like, oh, we're going on a whirlwind tour of the, you know, of the whole world. We're going 
in the way, but here, you have to take care of this dog because we can't, you know, the same reason that Samantha gives them Daphne, they could give them a dog at the same moment that Travolta adopts Rox. You can have the same premise, but you have Travolta in the house, that he's not off, whatever, and it's them against the dogs. You know what I mean? Like, yep. you could do the same sort of story, but like bring in the brother and sister, and they don't even have to be in the movie. Like, Margot Kidder did not want to be in Superman 3, but they still got her for two or three days of shooting or whatever, right? So No, yeah, then that, again, that's what's most frustrating here is there's there is opportunity to actually pull this off. And it just feels like it was rushed to me, basically. Oh, absolutely. If they had just sat down and maybe taken more time and tried to think it out a little bit, clearly you and I came up with a whole bunch of ideas I'd rather watch. So I'm not doubting that they could have gotten there as well if they had just had a little more time. But yeah, this definitely feels like one of those instances where it's just, you know, let's get it out there. Let's just try and make as much as we can as fast as possible off of this franchise. And and this was it. This is all they could make. They never made another one after this. And it, it hasn't been rebooted or brought back or, you know, they haven't done a 20-year sequel yet. Right. We are living in that day and age where it would it not surprise me. I would love to see Travolta and Kirstie Alley in a movie again together. I'm not sure if it needs to be Look Who's Talking For, but I'm not saying I wouldn't be there, you know? And I mean, there there is an easy way to do it, right? Is that Mikey and Julie are grown up and they have their own kids and the kids are talking. Like, it's like a... It's a but they have to watch the grandkids for the exactly. weekend. It's sort of, in a way, kind of like Fast and Furious 4, where it's like, you know, new model, original parts, right? Like, it's the same story as the first one with the actors that you like, but it's like a, it's a twist on it. There's all sorts of things you could do. Like, if you want to make another movie, it's easy to do it, and I think that people would be open to it, I guess, I would imagine. Especially releasing three of these movies in the span of, like, four or five years. Like, that feels like a lot. Like, it's... Yeah, it's overkill. You know, people complain now about one Star Wars movie every year, which I get, or two or three Marvel movies a year, but like this, to like really try to like just jam talking babies down your throat, especially, you know, as we talked about on the first one, I think, where I mentioned that I found that IMDb trivia about like how there's like a dozen baby movies at the end of the 80s. Like this is just like this baby boom. And people are probably like, no, like I'm, stop, I'm, I'm tired. Like this, enough babies. Give me literally anything else in movies. It's a bit overkill. It's a bit much like for three uh, Look Who's Talking movies in such a short amount of time. Although, you, you know, nowadays you could even bring these kids back like David Gallagher, you know, like that's another thing that is about this particular installment is that like they still got a bunch of working actors involved and they can all come back and do a reunion tour. So before wrapping up about the movie, we just got to get through the very end here. Yeah, so about the end here, what I like a lot about this is that Kirstie Alley gets to drive a taxi cab, right? Like, the first two movies, Travolta's a taxi cab driver and she finally gets to do it here, and it feels like there's no service paid to it. It's just like, this is the car that's around, and like, we're going to drive this. But it feels like there could have been more with that, that she has to use what he learned in past movies. I don't know what it is, and maybe it doesn't have to be in here at all, but I feel like there's a possibility of something interesting there, that they sort of swapped roles, that now she's the one just trying to get by or whatever, and he's got the steady job. It just felt like there was like a, hey, remember how he was a taxi cab driver? Well, like, look what she's driving now. Like, you like it, right? And just feels like, well, don't you have anything to say about it? It would have been real interesting if she became a cab driver in this yeah. movie. Yeah. Today, Uber driver, look who's talking for, Kirstie Alley, Uber driver. There we go. Do they own that taxi cab? Because he's not still driving a cab. He's a pilot now, but yet she's still able to drive that car around. So I only have a vague idea of how the taxi cab services work, but I think there's a possibility you might have to buy it. You also might have to pay for the medallion. Like, I feel like to get into that world, because... 
I think there is a thinking, and maybe it's true, maybe it's not true anymore because of like Uber and Lyft, that like once you have that, it's like this guaranteed source of income. And I think there is a financial investment that the drivers have to make into both the car and also the license to drive the cab. So there's a possibility. I don't, again, I don't know the details, but I feel like there's a possibility that maybe they do. Maybe that's just the car that they get around in, which is unfortunate, but also <laughs> kind of funny, maybe. So here's a connection. Danny DeVito was in a very popular sitcom called Taxi. Oh, mm-hmm. that's not even on IMDb. I just pulled that out of my own brain. There we go. I like seeing her behind the wheel. It would have been cool to sort of have a reprise of the hospital chase scene in the first movie where Travolta's trying to get her to the hospital before she has the baby in the back of his cab. If they were racing against some kind of clock and she had to pull some kind of like badass driving maneuvers, you know, some kind of straight up Toretto like driving <laughs> here at the end in the snow and stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe the thing is that like Travolta has like a, a 9.05 a.m. or 9.05 p.m. departure time with Samantha and like Kirstie has to race to the airport, like which I feel like she kind of sort of is, but it feels all very vague and weird at the end. She doesn't actually have a race against the clock. She's just trying to do something. You know what I mean? Like, it feels kind of vaguely important, but not specifically, I don't know what's happening. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's very rushed. She packs everyone into the car, and she's just trying to get to Samantha's cabin upstate. There is a snowstorm, but they left after it started snowing, so it's not like we have to get there before the blizzard. It's like, there's a blizzard, let's get in the car and get going. It, it isn't even like we have to get there before they leave. They're gonna be there hanging out, like, all night long. I guess she just... She wants to get there before a move is made, but that isn't even entirely clear. And then they get into an accident on the side of the road, and that's when the wolves come. Yeah. I was wondering at the end of the movie how dark this could have been if Travolta got eaten by wolves. And then I was like, oh, this could be super sad if rocks got killed by wolves, but they're both fine. Like, I understand how one dog can kind of chase away a wolf, but then at the end, after Kirstie Alley and the kids and Daphne, well, Daphne is separate, but after they get to the cabin, right? And then Travolta finds rocks and they're trying to find the cabin or whatever. And then they encounter a pack of wolves. And it seems like not only do they survive, but they have no scratches. Like, I don't know what happened here, but it feels like we should have seen something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Travolta like scaring them away or rocks doing something heroic, but rocks has this battle with one. It gets his leg cut or injured. And we see that. But then here against an entire literal pack of wolves, we don't see how they escape. And I'm like, what? 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 Yeah, it it actually cuts away at like one of those moments when they're about to charge each other where yeah. like Travolta and Rox are like, all right, buddy, it's you and me and the wolves are surrounding. It's like, ah, and then they cut away. And I mean, you kind of, I think it's supposed to be implied that they, they didn't survive unscathed, but you're right. They come around and they're like perfectly fine. I would have loved to have just seen Travolta with like a little bit of fire and just like waving the fire around for a minute or anything. But yeah. Yeah. Look, we had the fire at the end of the last movie, the apartment fire. So I knew something was going to come up, but this ending is just so fast and rushed and out of nowhere that again, it, it feels like the end of a different movie tacked on. I'm just getting kind of like confused and disoriented here instead of excited that we're wrapping up. It just, it feels like more work to pay more attention as opposed to sort of like, we're just going to breeze to the end here, but that's not what happens. It, it keeps making you work to get there. No, especially after the Kirstie Alley stuff where she's racing to the cabin and skids off with the ice and like sort of 
falls down an embankment and like hits the tree and has to like wait for help. Like that feels real because I heard there was a story. Something happened. Like, this is I don't know how to I don't know how to enter this without it being sounding like overly dramatic. But like what happened to her kind of in a way happened to me and my mom and my sister when we were driving back from my grandparents one time when I was little. This was before the age of cell phones. So kids, if you're listening to this, there used to be a time where we didn't all have phones in our pockets. We were driving back from my grandparents' house, and I don't remember why my dad wasn't with us, because he usually came with us to my my mom's parents' house. And we were driving back. It's like an hour and a half away. And about half an hour in, I don't know if we got a flat tire or the car broke down or what, but we were on the side of the highway for like a while. And it was November, December. It was around the holidays. We were sort of stranded on the side of the highway for, I don't know how long, but it felt like forever. And like we had, you know, toys and stuff. We had things in the car. And so we like, you know, my sister and I weren't freaking out. I'm sure my mom was freaking out because she's, you know, a mom alone right now with two little kids who just stranded on the side of the road with, like, nobody is stopping to help. And I remember after, like, an hour or more, nobody stopping to help, no way to get in touch with anybody, we finally decided to get out of the car, which I'm sure must have terrified my mom. And we started walking down the highway and, like, up, like, around to try to go to a town. And then a police officer was the first car. And he stopped us and he was like, you know, I'm here to help. But, like, it's it was really dangerous what you guys were doing. But, like, they sort of got rescued in the movie like kind of how we got rescued so we all got in the police car and i guess we went somewhere and called for like a tow company i don't know what happened because i was little but i remember like this movie like jogged these memories of like this semi-traumatic thing from my childhood i guess what i'm saying is like that all felt like real like that's a thing that happens and then travolta to take on a pack of wolves it's like what that feels like the whole movie to me where it's like all of the human stuff feels very real and plausible and practical and then all the dog stuff is just like in outer space and then when the two of them meet it's just a complete mess for me like I just can't because they're trying because the dog stuff is so fantasy and the human stuff is so reality that when the two meet it doesn't click like it's just fighting it feels like it's fighting each other for dominance you know like the dog fantasy stuff wants to overpower the normal human stuff and vice versa and that's why we get stuff like that wolf scene at the yeah end. and I think that like it's sort of in a weird way necessary because they need to have the dogs have a purpose in the story at all and so for the dogs to both be heroes in their own way validates to a certain extent their existence in the movie it's a miracle that they came up with any scene well, yeah absolutely to do that for oh boy but then they get to the end. They all they all get to the cabin, and uh, it's it's actually Christmas Eve, and they get to the cabin, and that's what restores Mikey's faith in Santa Claus because the family is back together, and his dad made it. And they hear Santa Claus on the radio, so you know he's he's up there, he's flying around. That's right. But they're trapped in this cabin on Christmas Eve. So, well, at least they have each other. That's all, that's all that really matters. But there, there's a funny bit online where it's like, we never find out what happens to the family. Like, did they die in the cabin? Like, it was the blizzard even worse and they get trapped? Like, did they try and actually go get help and the wolves attack again? Nobody knows and we'll never find out. But that's the end of Look Who's Talking Now. And the end of my notes. I mean, there's stuff that I like. I like the Travolta and Kirstie Alley and Olympia Dukakis. I like the performance by the boss by Samantha I like I thought she was good in this movie I don't think it fits in the movie like I like what the actors are doing I just don't like or I like how they're doing what they're doing but I don't like what they're doing if that makes sense like I think that they're all good here but it just feels like there's no story or not the right story or not enough story yeah it's not them it's the material they're doing their best and it's coming through. There was one moment when Molly is dressed up like a Santa elf for her new job, and we get another Star Trek joke where she goes, I'm not an elf, I'm a Vulcan. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
she played a Vulcan in Wrath of Khan. I thought that was cool. I mentioned that uh, the director, Tom Ropluski, he directed a movie called Lover Boy, and the movie revolves around a pizza parlor called Senior Pizza, and there's a Senior Pizza ad on top of the cab in this movie. So that's sort of a little Easter egg that Kirstie Alley was in that movie, and the director directed that movie, and there's a little nod to it in this movie. Hmm. So it's one of his little personal touches. Okay, so in this film, Danny DeVito does the voice of a dog named Rox. And Last Action Hero, released the same year, Danny DeVito does the voice of Whiskers, a cartoon cat. So he's getting his animal voiceover work on this year. Very cool. I think the only other thing I had was that Travolta and DeVito were in Get Shorty, which was a great movie, and they were also in Be Cool, which I haven't seen, which I think was sort of like a... Which is the sequel to Get Shorty. That was a sequel? Okay. Did they ever do a part three in that series? No, because Be Cool is not very good, but The Rock is in Be Cool. He plays a gay guy in Be Cool. All right. He doesn't play Hobbs, does he? No. Although... My theory, my Hobbs theory... What we talked about on Fast Five, our episode that came out about a month ago, as you're listening to this, uh, we talked about with Walt Hickey about our theory, because he had watched, Walt had watched all of The Rock's movies for that 538 piece, the three different types of The Rock movies. And he said, oh, well, he has played gay before in Be Cool. And I was like, oh, like I saw that movie forever ago, didn't remember anything about it. But that is written by, both of those movies are based on books by Elmore Leonard, who wrote Out of Sight, and he wrote Justified and all that sort of stuff. So like, And Jackie Brown and stuff like that, you know, he's created these books that became incredible film cinematic universes and then he also made Get Shorty and Be Cool so there's that I stand behind Get Shorty. I think that's a lot of fun. That was like right after Pulp Fiction where Travolta was like lightning hot. He was really hot and that really soared. He was He's really turning in like a, a Travolta performance in that movie. So there's no book club today. Whew. There's no novelization for any movie in this series and it wasn't based on any book because Amy Heckerling came up with this on her own out of her own brain it was the originator. It's based on the book of Amy Heckerling's life, basically. Yeah. I almost read a book of, like, child rearing and, like, pulled trivia from that, but I decided not to. Uh, what I did do, though, I have I have a couple questions I want to ask you. This is sort of like a new thing I'm trying to do with my show. I did in the last couple episodes just questions that I have for the guests that are kind of based off of the movie we just watched and talked about. Okay. And so there's not that many in this. I, I know you own a cat, but how are you about dogs? Have you ever been a dog owner? I've never had a dog. I, I'm not great around dogs just because I grew up with cats. And I like dogs. Like when I get to know dogs, friends' dogs, I like them. But I'm always a little hesitant of dogs just because I didn't grow up around them. I mean, I like rocks. Like rocks is the kind of dog that I like. I don't know if I could get along with a dog like Daphne. And I guess that's the point of this movie, that Daphne is like a, a, an upper crust kind of dog. But no, definitely more of a cat person. All right, cool. Oh, so Kirstie Alley gets fired in this movie. Have you ever been fired from a job in your life? I've been fired twice. Are either of them interesting stories? Not really. It's not fun, but it's also one of those things where, I guess, unlike her in this, she's she's more laid off than fired, where she doesn't expect it at all. These were sort of, I was like, oh, this isn't a fit for one reason or another, and I'm just sort of biding my time, and also at the same time looking for other things. So, like, when I got fired, I was like, oh, no, that's fine, because I didn't want to be here anymore anyway. This is, you know, I've never been laid off like to the point where, like, oh, you know, I now have two kids at home, and I, I have this income that I'm depending upon, and, like, the firing and the laying off comes off, like, extremely unexpectedly. Like, I I've never had that, but I have lost a couple jobs, but you know, no worse off. All, all good things. All right. I got fired once from Tower Records. Ooh. Um, such a weird reason. They go, um, you're, you're being fired because we think that you're going to steal stuff. 
I was like, well, what do, we, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, people heard you talking about how easy it would be to steal from Tower. You know, if you work there, you don't have to put anything through the metal detectors or anything. And I was like, yeah, I never said that. And in fact, it was at the time a manager of mine telling me, like, this is how easy people can steal from Tower. And <laughs> so I have no idea why I got, like, singled out for that. But yeah, I got... I got fired from Tower Records. It was like a preemptive firing because they thought I was going to start stealing things. But that's the only incident. Um, every other job I left on my own accord. I, w- yeah, I wasn't going to be fired or anything. It was just not a not a fit. I just decided I needed to, to move on. Okay, so a big thing in this is believing in Santa. Do you remember up until what age you believed in, in Santa Claus as a kid? Did you ever believe in Santa Claus as a kid? I did. That's a really good question. I remember... I think so in my fourth grade class, I remember one kid who was just like, oh, yeah, my parents told me Santa's not real. And I was just like, uh, like, I don't know if that's if, I don't know if you're too old at fourth grade. Like, I feel like that's sort of around the time where you start questioning things. And I think I maybe was. But the kid just like like flat out says my teacher was just like, all right, like she like she was she had been around. like She was an older teacher and she was great. She was one of my favorite teachers of all time. And I don't remember how she handled it, but I feel like she like somehow scolded him and brushed by it like, all at once. So I feel like it was handled really well. I do remember not exactly like Mikey here at the and hearing Santa on the radio, I think I was around that age where I wasn't sure if Santa was real or not, and I heard on Christmas Eve, like, sleigh bells, and I was like, oh, baby, like, I guess he is real. And, like, that's all it took, like, that, like, just in my, like, dumb little kid brain, I was like, oh, no, that's all, that's, you know, that's, that's it. Like, I'm, I'm good. I also think, sort of like Mikey here, because I have a sister who's three years younger, I sort of had a responsibility to, like, not address it or not bring it up, because you don't want to ruin it for her, you know what I mean? So, I don't remember, like, I don't remember if we ever had, like, a talk just like, oh, no, like, I still get presents now from Santa sometimes. I, I, do I? For a while I did. Like way after the fact, but it was just like a, hey, like a, this is a thing we do. Like we we know that you know it's not from Santa, but it's just like, that's who brings us Christmas presents or whatever. You know what I mean? But we always got, and I don't know if this is normal or this is weird, but like my entire life growing up, like we got Christmas presents from our parents, but also from Santa. I mean, they all came obviously from our parents, but like they were addressed from Santa from our parents. So like, I feel like that was sort of like a way to maybe transition. What about you? I feel like, you, you know, your punk rock lifestyle as a, as a youngster <laughs> might have, you know, ended the, the mystique a little bit early. Well, that didn't really come into play until middle school, I think. But I, I remember as a kid just really buying into it, like without a doubt, believing that there was a Santa like growing up because my parents would just do all kinds of tricks around the holiday season to convince me. Like if I was downstairs, they'd make noise upstairs on Christmas Eve and be like, oh, Santa's on the roof or something. And like they'd do stuff with the sleigh bells, you know, I'm trying to think, I think probably around eight or nine. I mean, somewhere around when you get out of grade school, I think from grade school to middle school, I, I knew the truth, but I always try to keep up the facade like with my niece and nephew i'm trying to get them to believe as long as possible one of my other nephews believed for a really long time which i thought was great i think the eight-year-old last year was a little suspicious about some things but then we have like a guy dressed up as santa come and like say hello and stuff so like that got him over another year i think that reassured him for another year but i can't remember exactly i just remember not being devastated of all you know what i'm saying like i could just kind of remember accepting it and being like, well, that kind of makes sense that, yeah, to a degree, but I just remember like it wasn't a dark day when I found out there was no Santa. It was just sort of a matter of fact 
kind of realization to me. I just can't imagine today like how readily available all of the information is. Like like the internet is at kids' fingertips. Like you could find out so early. Like I think to the point where like you can talk to your Echo device. I'm not gonna say the name because mine's gonna turn on, and you could ask her about like whether Santa's real or not, and they give you know vague and like hopeful answers. Like I think there are ways that people are trying to preserve the mystique, and I think that also doubles down. Like I don't know if your sister does like the Elf on the Shelf or things, but I feel like there's there's new things that I guess have sort of come up to combat the growing jadedness of our entire society and to make kids believe more so than in the past. I don't know, but I can't imagine how difficult it is to keep kids believing today. And I also think it makes sense, like you were saying, like when you get to middle school, because suddenly you're around kids, like the majority of kids around you know Santa's not real. And so there's not that like nervous chatter or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's not like you're talking about Santa because they all know and like you also want to be cool or whatever. And if they say something, I don't know. Like I feel like that's definitely like a transitionary point, like where if you go from being like a K to four school to like a five to eight or whatever, that that makes sense just around based on who you're surrounded by that you're suddenly going to be like oh right like the things that I just sort of blindly accepted about like Santa and the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy you know aren't real but yeah tough 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 stuff and you know what else isn't real look who's talking for (laughs) oh look at that what a professional way to close out the podcast so we can go out on that note Joey thank you very much for coming over to third time's a charm today so that we could mark off this box just complete this formality just put this to rest get this out of our system you know i will say at some point i might probably will rewatch the first movie because the first movie i, I want to stress in case people who listen to this haven't listened to cinemakers the first movie is so good it's so weird and so unexpectedly good and like genuinely good and not just like good in a oh this is a unique kind of way but like genuinely weird and funny and good and i don't think you ever need to watch two or three but the first one go find it like it's not a christmas movie it's just like a regular any time of the year movie but it's so good i'm gonna watch that again at some point i think because it's just so charming and weird and wild and wonderful and it clearly means so much to amy hackerling that i don't want to say two and three muddy the the waters of its legacy but don't see two or three just watch the first one and just love the first one for what it is Yeah, I don't think I can endorse this one, even though this show is about part three. I think I'm going to have to issue a warning and say maybe stay away from this one. I I love that first movie. I mean, they just did everything they needed to with that first one. They don't have to go any further. It said everything that needed to be said with that premise with that story and it's great it's terrific i don't think two and three make the first one worse i think two and three are just really struggling to live up to that first one instead of trying to find their own identity in some way i really think that there was opportunity to take if not two definitely part three in its own fresh direction to make it work in some manner but they just never got there with it i think they just came out too fast and too furious from each other joey they're just too too many too soon too much is just they're shoving it down our throats and we had to upchuck it back like a little baby kid. So definitely go check out those two episodes. Well, check out every episode of Cinemakers and all the other shows on our network, definitely, especially the ones that Joey and I do together because we all know those are the best episodes. But yeah, that'll definitely bring us to the end of Look Who's Talking Now for Third Time's a Charm. Joey, Merry Christmas. Merry Happy Christmas. New Year. Yes, you too. Oh, in two weeks, I mean, not that there's a, th- if you find a third part, bless your heart, but listen to 
to my episode of Zack Attack. We talked about Zack Attack earlier when we mentioned Hairspray, but Joe and I did our New Year's Eve episode of the Zack Efron oh. movie. So if you don't have a third third time to charm this month, in two weeks, go check out New Year's Eve. And there, I don't remember what the timing is, but we timed it so that we did like a countdown in the middle of the episode, like countdown to midnight. So like, I think if you start like at like 11.54 or something, it's in the episode. Like we, we talk about it and then we say like, start now. Go listen to that. And then, you know, if you're alone this holiday season, be surrounded by me and Joe before Joe and I were really good at podcasts together. I don't remember if that's a good episode or not, but go do that. Yeah, and we hope you're not alone this holiday season, but if you are, the Cage Club Podcast Network is there for you. So you just have to go to cageclub.me and check out any of the 20-plus shows that we have in our network and press play, and it's just like we're there with you in your living room celebrating New Year's, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Boxing Day, all the holidays. There's a lot in December. But that'll do it for this episode of Third Time's a Charm. So we'll see you next year. Bye. So there you have it, listeners. We can finally close the book on the Look Who's Talking franchise. A quick note about taxi drivers from Wikipedia. Some taxicab companies are independently owned small businesses with only one taxicab and driver, but many cab companies have fleets of a hundred or more taxicabs. Drivers are rarely employees of the company and usually lease the taxicab on a per-shift basis. Leased drivers receive no benefits from the taxicab company and often have to bribe dispatchers to get a shift. However, in some cases, cabs can also be owned by separately incorporated small businesses that subscribe to a dispatch service, in which case the company logo on the door is that of the dispatch association. The owner-driver will pay a monthly fee to the taxicab company, purchase and maintain his own vehicle, and may, in turn, lease shifts to other drivers. For more about taxis, please contact the internet. And that concludes this year of Third Times of Charm. I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who stopped by the show. Joey, Kara, Brian, Tobin, Chris, and Nico, Kyle, Dan, and Austin. Thanks for making year one of Third Times so much fun and so memorable. I think I'll keep it going. I will admit I wasn't sure what the hell I was doing with this show to begin with. I just love movie franchises and reading and found a way to combine everything in a totally ridiculous way by reviewing part threes and their novelizations. I think once I declared hashtag season one forever, things really started to come together. I even surprised myself a little bit with the frequency at which some episodes started coming out in the back half of this year. Coming up next year, I have a great schedule planned, but as always, things are subject to change. All I'll say is I'm trying to celebrate as many holidays as possible and cross over with as many other shows I can and obviously read as many novelizations as I can find. So for all things Third Time's a Charm, go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, and cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Write me at three at cageclub.me. That's T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me. Go check out the Cinemaker episodes that my show crossed over with this month, the National Lampoon's European Vacation episode, and the two Look Who's Talking movies. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Support Cage Club on Patreon, where you can have the chance to decide what we review in the future. Support the entire Cage Club family at cageclub.me. I'm your host, Mike, saying have a great holiday season, and I'll see you next year. Three. That's
the magic number. Yes, it is. It's the magic number.